Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thanks, Ali. Good morning, everybody. Very good. Yeah, my name's Evan. Uh, yeah, it's great to see you all. Uh, my wife, Sandy, and I have the joy of leading Park Hill Church. We are seven weeks into a series called Future Church. So each week, we're looking at a challenge that we face as followers of Jesus in our cultural moment. And, and then we lay out a practice from Jesus' own mind, <laughs> from his vision. And, and we end with that practice uh, and we, br we bring it into our own communities. And, and we believe that as we follow Jesus' vision, he orients us away from the destructive patterns of culture toward what he calls life abundant. And so today we're talking about this, a community of peace in a culture of outrage and fear. Do you have that slide? Slide two, a community of peace in a culture of outrage and fear. Okay. Before we go any further, let's take a deep breath. Acknowledge that the Prince of Peace is in the room. Invite him to come. Let's, let's pray, Holy Spirit, come together. Can we all say, Holy Spirit, come? Holy Spirit, come. Thank you that you're present to us. You promise to be with us. We believe your promise this morning. Illuminate our minds to the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's 1918. The previous global pandemic is about to break out. Spanish flu, right? Meanwhile, on a dairy farm in Delaware, Ohio, north of Columbus, baby John Jacob Wickham entered the world. Okay. My grandpa. He was born to Joy Carrollton Wickham, he's JC, Dr. JC, my grandpa who I never knew, and his wife Ruth, my great-grandma I never knew. And that was a very different world, right? JC, my great-grandpa, would go out into the fields in the late 1800s, early 1900s with a bucket and a bag of lunch, and the only noises he would hear all day were the ones he would make and the ones creation would make around him. No airplanes flying overhead, no tractors around. If he wanted to get a book to read, he'd have to hitch up the team to the buggy, right? And drive it into town to borrow a book if it was even available at the library. The only way to get news of the pandemic, the Spanish flu, or what was happening in DC would be to head to town on Sunday, once a week when they printed the paper after church. And we think of that as like, man, what would that be like? The downside is you have to go out of your way for new information. The upside is you're most often completely present in the moment around you. For us today, that's flipped, right? The upside for us, we have information everywhere. It's really easy to get educated. There's so much to learn, but the downside, we live in a world of noise, right? We're used to having so much noise around us something J.C. Wickham didn't understand, like the world that he was creating by even having his baby boy. And in the off chance, if the off chance we aren't surrounded by noise today, if we find a quiet place, we start to experience a strange phenomenon. It's a very weird alien sensation called boredom, right? Have you felt boredom recently? <clears throat> How many of you have even used that word or said, I'm bored recently? It's been a while since a lot of us have been truly bored, like where our eyes and our ears aren't being stimulated by anything. In a world of noise, in a world of noise, boredom is hell. We really don't like it, so much so that we become addicted to medicating our boredom with trivial impulses and constant noise. We now look for noise to, as an anesthetic to this thing called boredom that is our new hell. Who here has heard of uh, an anechoic chamber? It's a, uh, yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. An anechoic chamber. Microsoft apparently has built the quietest place on earth. 
the quietest anechoic chamber anywhere. It's all treated with noise and there's no, zero echo. Uh, apparently, if you sit in that chair, do you have the picture? It's super dim. Again, next week we have like a three times brighter projector that we're going to install. But, uh, but that's a chair in the middle of the anechoic chamber. Apparently, if you sit in there, shut the door and be still for about an hour, you actually start feeling insane. In a video on YouTube, you can see a guy sitting in that chair. After one hour of perfect silence in the dark, he, you actually, with the like, night vision cam on him, you start to see him seeing things. He starts seeing things. He's so in a weird place. This is called anxiety response, you guys. And we don't need to sit in that chair in the anechoic chamber to witness this anxiety in our lives. So Sandy and I, we like to get away to this uh, monastery called Christ in the Desert in New Mexico. It's like 75 miles away from anything. The driveway alone is 13 miles out into nowhere. <clears throat> so we, we drove up the monk's driveway and we're like six miles into this gravelly road and we decided to get out and take in the view and when we turn off the engine of the car we did not expect what happened next like actual silence have you heard that the sound have you heard the sound of the breeze against the ground like not wind in the trees but the normal breeze all the time, but blowing against dirt. Have you heard this? It's eerie, you guys. Uh, after those first 30 seconds of silence, we're standing outside the rental car in the middle of the New Mexican desert, and Sandy and I slowly turn to each other to discover we're both physically crying. There's like this anxiety release. We had no idea that was underneath us that was so quick to bubble out. And you know the stats. Here's why. The average iPhone user touches their phone 2,516 times a day, Jacob. Thank you. That's very kind. That's, that's us. 2,500 times a day, the average iPhone user. And, and we're on our phones three hours and 15 minutes a day on average. If you can check your screen time, that might not be too far off for you. The number's nearly twice that for millennials and Gen Z, so maybe you're more than three and a half hours. Some of the most brilliant minds of our generation are working crazy hours to create technology that's literally designed to make noise to distract you, addict you, and monetize your attention and sell your behavior to advertisers. And the data is in. Not just social media is making us miserable. It's not just making us miserable, but it's making us worse people. We're actually becoming meaner. It's well documented now. The more time you spend on social media, the more anxious you are, more depressed you are, the meaner you get. I've recently been surprised at this, how mean people are online, online. Like no one at the grocery store, you're like, <clears throat> you're like behind someone and they grab whatever product, you're like, oh yeah, you would grab that one. <laughs> Total stranger. Like, oh yeah, you seem like the kind of person that would totally not grab this better one or whatever. You just make a judgment. No one does that in real person. But online, it's absolutely normal. I recently saw an Instagram feed of a Christian organization, not a personal one, a, an organization that was Christian, like training people in education theologically or something. But they did this series of posts roasting well-known pastors, just taking shots for no reason, just as a series of posts to like gain traction and have fun with zero relationship with these pastors. Like, how many of you have ever been the victim of a roast, like at work or whatever? It can be nice, it hurts, but at least you're in relationship with people in the room, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but this was literally a digital roast of virtual strangers by a Christian organization on Instagram. And I'm like, is it just me or is the normal rules of human decency changing? Um, and of course, all the meanness on the internet, it's a symptom, right, of a larger problem. We live in a culture of outrage. There's a graph here. You see the progression. Everybody's mad at somebody about something, starting with noise, and then we, in, we ingest the noise, increases our anxiety and loneliness, and then we, 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 we lose human decency thinking that's the new norm, 
And now we live in it. We live in a culture of outrage. To clarify, you guys, I want to say there is anger that is legitimate. There is anger that is good. Because there is evil in the world. There is injustice. And anger is your body's natural response to not getting what it thinks it needs. This can be a good thing. But it's easily twisted, right? By, our, by what Paul calls our flesh. Our sinful desires. Jesus warned of the danger of anger. In Matthew 5, he says, I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which was an ancient word for like empty head, anyone who says that is answerable to the court. Everyone gets banned from social media all of a sudden. Everyone says raka. And, and, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. So Jesus saw there was a place for good anger, right? How do we know this? The temple cleansing, right? We all know that story. If we are remotely connected to Christianity, we know Jesus got angry in the temple and turned over tables, right? But he also, Jesus also saw that a lot of our anger is rooted in contempt and pride and, and it results in canceling people. And, and, and it's interesting, you guys, how often we cite Jesus's anger in the temple to justify our canceling of people. That's interesting. Like Jesus was angry, he turned over their tables, so I'm gonna get them. But somehow we forget that Jesus was able to be perfectly angry at injustice while also perfectly loving his enemies. He somehow did both all the time. Jesus' brother James warned us also, he says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. What a verse for our moment, you guys. What a verse. So what's behind our rage? What's behind the outrage of our day on both sides of the culture war? What if it's our pain? What if it's pain? James Baldwin, civil rights activist with MLK, he said this, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they'll be forced to deal with pain. Behind every social media rant, and every time we blow up on road rage, every office outburst, there's a ton of pain behind there. Our healing means naming that. And not just pain, but the core human emotion of fear. Fear. And this is where this all goes. The culture of outrage ultimately gives us a reality where pain and fear enslave us. Fear of the future, fear of the past, fear of losing control, fear for losing America or something, fear of the other, fear of what other people think of us, fear if people really knew me, or fear if I, if I were to face what's really inside myself. I would find nothing but shame. Faith over fear. How many of you heard that phrase? No one's heard faith over fear. I think we're all just triggered by that phrase. Um, we're like, oh my gosh, oh, I'm supposed to raise my hand. Yeah, faith over fear. We've heard it a lot this last year and a half. Faith over fear. Um, when it's... <laughs> so I have a love-hate relationship with that phrase, I'll be honest. On one hand, absolutely. Perfect love of Jesus casts out all fear, which is why we should trust Jesus who commands us not to be anxious. Absolutely love it. But re let's be real. Let's not be reductionist. Let's be nuanced, thoughtful. Fear is the most primal survival instinct in our body designed by God to save life. Fear is a gift. Fear is a gift from God designed to preserve human life. If you don't believe me, just watch what happens to a parent when their child runs out into a busy street, right? Cortisol, adrenaline, pulse response, AKA fear. 
someone once tried to like wiggle out of that, they're like, that's not fear, that's caution. I'm like, no, that's fear. It's the same exact physiological response that we have when we get whatever we feel from the internet or whatever. And it's a gift at its core, it's a gift. But that important nuance is lost when you hear someone shout over the line, faith over fear, right? Because really what they're saying is, we're not the afraid tribe, you're the afraid tribe. And our faith is better, we're being more faithful. And over here they're like, I'm not afraid, I'm just being caught, I'm actually living by authority. I'm you're the one who's afraid, acting crazy. And everyone says faith over fear as a grenade. It's a weaponized phrase, it doesn't actually help anyone. And that nuance of fear as a gift is lost in the shouting match, which sadly is way more motivated by right-left politics than a desire to think biblically and slowly about laying aside personal freedoms for the sake of the vulnerable, right? But here's the problem. Here's the real problem about fear today. In a world that's suffering under the curse of, of sin and the Satan, our bodies get overcome by fear. Fear becomes not a servant, but a master. We become enslaved to our fears, run by them, and they sabotage our deepest desires to grow and mature into people of love. The real danger of being overwhelmed by fear is the temptation to move away from love and peace toward rage and worry, anxiety, in other words, you guys, if the way you hold your opinion is making you less loving, then you are likely overcome by fear. If what you consume and post on social media and the news and the way you engage with people is leading you away from peace, then you are likely moving toward anxiety and overcome by fear instead of the love of Jesus. After all, the New Testament's clear. It says there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And this is where the way of Jesus has so much to offer us, you guys. Jesus' most repeated command was do not fear. Don't be afraid. It is I, don't be afraid. Some say it's the most common command in the whole Bible. And I know for a lot of us today, we feel crippled by fear. You're like, okay, that's nice. Jesus says, don't be afraid. That doesn't actually help at 2 a.m. when I can't stop my panic attack. And that's right, you're right. So listen, maybe this is a word for many of us. Releasing anxiety, releasing fear is a journey. You guys, Jesus knows this. It's a process. Yes, there might be breakthroughs. You're sitting in that therapy appointment where they unpack the power of the past in your life or whatever, and there's a breakthrough. Absolutely. But for most of us, on most days, releasing anxiety to receive healing from Jesus is a slow pace with tons of grace. And Jesus knows this. He knows this. And even knowing this, Jesus says things like this, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself, each day has enough trouble of its own, Matthew 6. Or in Matthew 24, Jesus says, you will hear about wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation. I was like, governments are gonna do what governments do. Kingdom against kingdom, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Birth pains. You guys, one of our pastors, Aaliyah Persley, pastor of community formation, I think she's watching from home because this week the baby is due. She's having a baby. 
And so, uh, birth pains, they, they point to joy. Like, like all the awkward, nervous concerns and health stuff and all the pains, it's all leading somewhere beautiful. Jesus is like, governments are going to do what governments are going to do, but these are actually birth pains. There's something joyful coming. Or in, in John, Jesus says this, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. No wonder almost every letter in the New Testament starts with grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's no wonder Paul calls the Father God of peace and Jesus Prince of Peace. This is Jesus' vision, you guys, and the New Testament writer's vision of you as a church, a community of peace in a culture of outrage and fear. This is who we're called to be. A community that functions like what Edwin Friedman called a non-anxious presence. Non-anxious presence. People who are not alarmed. We're known as not alarmed. Is that, who, is that what we're known for right now? Are Christians not, the, the not alarmed people in America right now? No, no, we're not living into our identity. As a, as a church of the nation, we're not living into our identity. We're supposed to be people who are not alarmed in global pandemics, in political holy wars, social unrest, but we're anchored to the peace of Jesus. Okay, we described this, we talked about it, but it's like, how on earth are we supposed to do this? How on earth as it is in heaven are we supposed to do this? This is a tall order. How do we, how do we keep ourselves from colluding with the black hole of social rage and fear? Is there a practice from Jesus that will help us, that'll help orient us away from anxiety and rage toward peace and love? The answer is yes, there's many, but at the top, there's this practice called silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. This is what we are calling Park Hill Church into. So to do that, let me introduce you to St. Arsenius. He is, there he is, very dim in the, in the poorly uh, lamped pr rental projector, which is dimmer than advertised. But next week, it's like three times brighter again, so he should be brighter next week if we, if we meet St. Arsenius. Fourth century desert father, born in the year 350. His dad was a Roman senator and judge. His parents were both seen as godly, and they were also wealthy. And they sent Arsenius to be raised by the church, teachers in the church. And that's where Arsenius fell in love with the scriptures and the way of Jesus. And after his parents died, Saint Arsenius, some call him Arsenius the Great, he and his sister gave away all their wealth after his parents died, gave away their job, and gave away their location. They moved to the deserts of North Africa to pray. That's what he did. And he was one of thousands, tens of thousands, of followers of Jesus who we now call the Desert Fathers and Mothers, who played a huge role in giving us the contemplative tradition. They didn't call it the contemplative tradition, like, we're gonna start the contemplative tradition and teach people how to pray quietly or whatever. No, they were just responding to their environment and practicing Jesus' way in one of the ways they needed to most. So serious followers of Jesus ever since have practiced this desert prayer lifestyle. Years later, Arsenius was asked, why did you give up your Roman life? You had an inheritance and your parents were wealthy. Why'd you leave? And as the story goes, Arsenius said, I was praying one day and I asked the Lord, lead me into salvation, Lord. And he felt a voice say back to him, Arsenius, flee, be silent, pray always for these are the sources of sinlessness. So whether that story is legend or history, it aligns with Jesus. 
we see this pattern in the life of Jesus so we can learn a lot from it because we live in the noisiest version of the world yet. So here's Luke 5 again. Allie read it at the beginning. The news spread about Jesus all the more. So there's noise, right? Everybody's telephone news feed was, Jesus was all over word of mouth so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. That phrase, lonely places, is one word in Greek, which basically means wilderness, desert, solitude. It's a place where all the bells and whistles of life stripped away and all our attachments are exposed. The things we think we need to be happy that are actually at the root of our fear, they're revealed. It's the place where our soul, as our soul truly is, is naked before God. And that wilderness, that silent place, that was a core practice for Jesus. Five times in the Gospels, they mention Jesus specifically practicing this. There's not many things that the Gospels say Jesus practiced five times. This is one of them. And Jesus would come back to it again and again. You could say that the practice of silence and solitude was a non-negotiable part of Jesus' rule of life. We brought up that phrase at the beginning of the series, right? A rule of life. In other words, a way we agree to follow Jesus. One of the outcomes of this teaching series is that Park Hill Church, we would all have a version of a rule of life. How many days a week do we pray and spend time with God? Do we Sabbath once a week? Do we do a solitude day once a month? What does it look like? How generous are we? How much justice can we physically get involved in in our city? All of these things are part of our rule of life, our way we have agreed to follow Jesus together. That's why there's eight teachings in this series that leave you with the practice, because we believe as elders, that these eight practices belong in all of your rules of life. In some way, according to your life phase, whatever makes most sense. But for Jesus, this one was non-negotiable. Following Jesus into the wilderness is a practice that has come to be called silence and solitude. So maybe you grew up in evangelical church like me, which is awesome, and you heard the phrase quiet time. You guys ever had heard the phrase quiet time? Did you do your quiet time today kind of thing? That's awesome. That's fine. The only problem is it's ambiguous. It's like, what does that even mean? <laughs> what am I supposed to do? For me growing up in church, quiet time didn't mean silence and solitude necessarily. First and foremost, it meant solo Bible reading, right? Quiet time meant get along with your Bible and make sure you read your chapter, which is awesome. And you should do it. That's just a different practice. That's practicing scripture. So in prep for this teaching, Matt personally gave a helpful insight. Matt is one of our elders and the executive pastor of Park Hill. And uh, he said this, and he got this from one of his professors. Scripture talks all the time about reading your Bible, right? We should read the Bible. But it's most often together, community reading. Um, it's surprising how hard it is to find anywhere in the Bible where it tells you to go and have a private, quiet time Bible reading solo moment. Very hard to find the Bible telling us to do that. It's a good thing to do, it's just not the emphasis. The scriptures talk differently about prayer, okay? They talk a ton about praying together, just like they talk about Bible reading together, but guess what? They talk as much or more about going away and praying silently, privately, and still. Do you have a rhythm for this? We are not called to be Christians alone. We're called to gather and to break bread, communion, justice, generosity, all of that. But as Christians, we are called to be alone, to pray, specifically to be silent and still in God's loving presence. This is how Jesus moved into deeper intimacy with his Father. This is how we do. As my friend uh, Dave Lomas put it, it's about creating the emotional and spiritual space which allows Christ 
to build in us an inner sanctuary where we can commune with God, unite with God's will, and enjoy his presence. So picture in your mind your favorite place to pray. Or maybe just the place you end up praying mostly. Favorite place to rest in God. It could be church or sunset cliffs or your living room early in the morning. For me, it's this little Carmelite monastery garden, like 0.5 miles from my house. A bunch of cloistered nuns live in my neighborhood. How awesome is that? It's amazing. So half a mile from my door, I like to go there once in a while. But more often, I'm on my back deck looking at the sunrise over East County. Um, the goal of silence and solitude is to let Jesus build an inner sanctuary inside you. A place that no matter where your body is, you can always go to rest in Jesus' peace. Do you have this? Have you built this? It doesn't just happen by osmosis when you're baptized. It happens through practice. This is what Jesus was getting at in John 15 when he said, abide or remain in me. Stay there. Stick it out. It just means to make your home in God and let God make his home in you. Not in theory, but actually through practice. You have to build your inner temple for the spirit to come dwell. So let's put that really tragic slide back up. This is where we're at, right? Noisy culture leads to anxiety, loss of human decency, outrage and pain, an environment of rage. Silence and solitude spins it on its head and it's a gift from Jesus. You have the next slide. Silence and solitude, no matter where you are in our rage culture, you build an inner sanctuary where you commune with God and become at home in shalom, the peace of Jesus. This is the purpose of following Jesus into the desert on purpose. Now, all this sounds great, but I hear, uh, you know, my beloved professor, Gary Bashirs, from my seminary days in the back of my mind, he used to say of Genesis, the creation story, you know, when, when God built Eden, he was building a temple in the universe to live with his people. And so Eden is this temple in the middle of a war zone, according to Bashirs. Meaning the Garden of Eden was an act of battle. He was attacking Satan's stuff and creating a peaceful home to live with his creatures. Silence and solitude is that process in our soul. Building an Eden of your inner life to meet with God and take back all the anxiety and worry that Satan plundered. Silence and solitude is probably the most radical and most misunderstood practice from Jesus in our time. It's the most radical, Robert Mulholland says this way, here's why, the, the practice of silence is the radical reversal of our cultural tendencies. Silence is bringing ourselves to a point of, I love this, relinquishing to God our control of our relationship with God. <laughs> Even my relationship with you, God, isn't mine, it's yours, and we say that and we live it through being silent. Silence is a reversal of the whole possessing, controlling, grasping dynamic of trying to maintain control of our own existence. It's the inner act of letting go. A lot of us are living life like this, fists out front, and our souls are following the clutching. And God's like, build a temple with me inside your soul. Be open to me. Silence and solitude is also extremely misunderstood. It's radical and misunderstood. For a lot of people, silence and solitude is a chance to get a little me time, right? Recharge your batteries, get away, do what you wanna do. And while that's not bad, rest is good. For introverts, that feels awesome. <laughs> this might turn silence and solitude into spiritual justification of narcissism rather than a, a discipled practice to become more loving can actually become more selfish. And for extroverts, the problem is we, I'm an extrovert, we view silence and solitude as like an option if we're feeling bad. But if we're feeling great, a lot of people around me, a lot of work being done, I'm feeling awesome. And so I never really get around to quiet. 
But this vision of silence and solitude as, oh, it's just downtime for introverts. It's just me time. No, no, no. Uh, that is not the vision of Jesus in the desert or Paul in Arabia or Arsenius in Egypt. In fact, for the desert fathers and mothers, you know their, their go-to Bible verse for silence and solitude? It was not, abide in the vine, rest in my yoke. That was not their verse. Their verse was, fight Satan in the wilderness. Luke 4, 1 is the one they quoted. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Both the Spirit and the Satan wanted Jesus in the solitude. Both of them wanted him there to fight. And many of us are shocked when we go into the quiet. We get alone. We finally do the quiet time of, of stillness. And we're like, we, we're supposed to find God's peace. But instead, I'm just, all, my, all my fears and anger came to the surface. My, I, my, I, my mind kept racing. My attachments are screaming. I think I was attacked by a demon. And like obsessive thoughts dominate your mind. Lustful thoughts serve all these things instead of desire for God. It doesn't work for me, we, we think at that point. Which brings up famous quote from Blaise Pascal, all men's miseries derive not from, from not being able to sit in a quiet room alone. All men's miseries come from not being able to sit in a quiet room alone. That's because silence and solitude is the place of encounter. It's where you meet God, it's where you meet the devil, it's where you meet reality of your life. This lonely place, this wilderness, is the, it's the furnace that transforms you. You enter the fire, you become gold. It's a place where God sets us free from our attachments and our deepest fear that fuel anger. And without silence, you guys, we stay enslaved. Without quiet, we remain enslaved to the worst parts of our flesh that we're just believing. And then we use noise to drown out noise and we medicate our boredom with a Netflix binge. When we do that, we're, we're dealing with a symptom. We're not dealing with the disease. We're not opening ourselves to God's reality, which is our root problem. The path of transformation is learning how to be with our pain, our anger, to notice our deepest fears and let God be with us there so that new life can emerge in us and through us so we can become people of peace in a world that needs the Prince of Peace. This is the task. This might be the hardest, for me at least, task of this whole future church series. It's the most vacant in my life. It's the most difficult for me to be consistent in. But when I do, my goodness, I'm reminded why I don't ever want to go back. So I'm going to leave us with a practice, and, and we're going to be baptized. The Prince of Peace wants to welcome people into his culture of peace. And so here's, here's a practice. I'm going to... Um, let you know what to expect in the community guide this week. If you're part of a community, you're going to see this written out. If you're not part of one, join one. And if you're unable to join one, we can send you these practices in a separate email. They're that important. We don't do that very often with these practices because we want to do them in community. Um, but here's how, here's how it might look for you. Ideally, before you touch your phone in the day, in quiet prayer, Here's entry level, baseline, and reach. So you have that slide with entry, base, yeah. So just kind of, if you're new to this, um, at, at entry, just try a short 10 minute time of silence one day this week. Again, preferably before you've already stimulated your brain with digital media. And then a baseline practice, like this is part of my life, survival mode is adopt a rhythm of silence and solitude each day, maybe in the morning. Again, five to 10 minutes. I'll show you what this looks like. We're actually gonna do it together today for three minutes. And then the reach goal, expand your practice of silence and solitude by planning regular days or trips. Maybe spend the day at a local abbey 
I know the, the monastery Sandy and I go to, they don't allow visitors overnight right now, because, and they're really far away, so we can't just go for the day, because those monks have unique immune systems. <laughs> They've lived alone cloister for 50 years, so they have like no antibodies to anything. So um, they don't let anyone stay over. So, but maybe spend the day in a monastery garden in San Diego or somewhere in wilderness, San Jacinto or Joshua Tree, wherever you can have a quiet place. That's the reach goal. And do it as an invitation to God to gaze on you and you gaze back. So the more time, the better, the more consistent, the better. But if all you can do right now is like two or three minutes, even if it's brand new, you're like, this is wild. Just sit alone. What am I supposed to read? Nothing. Two to three minutes. I'm here for you. Holy Spirit, come. Really settle in. So before we end, I don't want to just send you out into the desert with Satan alone. So... Uh, let me sketch out five super simple movements to keep in mind as we practice this as a church. And disclaimer, these five steps are not linear. They're more like five aspects. If you turn the diamond of stillness, you see the, the, the light pass through a different, a different fr uh, whatever corner of the diamond. So this is not a technique to control you, control your prayer life. These are more like five ways for us to let go of control to God. So they're uh, relax, detach, look, listen, and love. Some of these come from Ignatius. Um, others come from more modern folks. So here's a short word on each. Relax. So let's, you get alone or you wake up Monday morning at 6.30 or whatever. Like, I'm gonna give 6.45 to seven to Jesus tomorrow or whatever. Like, okay, first of all, relax. Ronald Rollheiser defines prayer as relaxing into God's goodness. That's prayer. I love that. We live so much of our day reacting, not relaxing. We're actually responding to things. And we bounce from thing to thing until we collapse with Netflix. The first task of prayer is just relax, calm down. Let your mind and body settle in. Let your spinal fluid just kind of find a little rhythm. Just breathe. Let your nervous system draw on God's peace. There's no right way to do this. Start with the Bible. Absolutely. That's amazing. Best way. Read a psalm. And then attend to your breath. Maybe we can do that now. Notice the breath you're taking. And then attend to your breath. Now attend to the moment. Don't think of last week or, or the future. What's now? These lights are always nice. Waters of baptism are open. Be here. And finally, we attend to God. So attend to breath, attend to now, attend to God. And we realize that God says a promise, I will always be with you. Oh my gosh, that promise is still standing. And the most basic way to do this is through contemplative prayer. That's the common name for it. You unite your breath with a word. Maybe it's the word trust, which is a synonym for faith. I'm struggling with worry, so maybe for 10 seconds right now, you can just take a deep breath and every exhale, whisper trust. You might get one or two breaths in in 10 seconds. Thank you, Lord. The king's in the room. God is present to you. So relax. And then number two, detach. Detach. And, and detachment in the way of Jesus is very different from detachment in Buddhism or Eastern religions, where the goal is to detach from all desire. That's not our goal as Jesus followers. For us, we want to detach from surface level desires of what Paul calls the flesh in order to attach to our deepest desire, which is union with God. We desire the fullness of God, not the emptiness of our minds. So it's not about emptying your mind, it's about filling your mind with awareness of God's triune Father, Son, Spirit presence through truth of Scripture.
And the wall we hit at this moment is pride, self-will. We want to control our relationship with God when we can't. God wants us to open to the bad days and he wants us to open to the good days. He wants us to live open, open to what he wants to do in the bad or the good. But the problem there is we're prideful. We want only good days. As Pete Scazzaro put it, slide 33, our core spiritual problem is self-will. We all want a spiritual life, but prefer to be in charge of it and have it unfold according to our schedule and in our way. So in prayer, we release that to God. God, whatever my relationship with you does, whatever turns it takes, I'm open. And you breathe. Some call this yielding. Saint Ignatius called this indifference. I grew up in Calvary Chapel where we called it surrender or death to self, the crucified life. All of that is beautiful. It's Jesus in the garden before any Christian denominations existed and he said, not my will, Father, but yours be done. This is what we do. We relax, we detach, then, I love this one, straight from Saint Ignatius, we look. This is the heart of prayer. Look, looking at God, looking at me in love. I'm looking at God looking at me. For some of us, this might mean quoting scripture where God sees us. Or some, it might be envisioning the beauty of God gazing literally at you, believing that that's true in theology. God actually is doing what we're envisioning. The ancients called this beholding and becoming. This is spiritual formation at its most basic. When you behold God, the result is you become like God. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. This is where we get contemplative prayer. We become what we contemplate. You become what you contemplate whether that's Jesus or the New York Times or Fox News or the Psalms or the socials. You name it, you become what you contemplate. And as we contemplate Christ looking at us in love and we look at him looking at us, we're transformed. It's a process, but we're transformed. And then number four, we listen. In the New Testament, one of the main postures of a disciple is sitting at his feet and listening. I think of Samuel. You know the story of Samuel the prophet. Speak, Lord, your servant hears. And you're like, yeah, but he's a prophet. He literally hears God. I don't hear God's voice, but don't say that. Because under the new covenant paid for by Jesus' blood, we now have direct access to the Father through Jesus and the Spirit. We have the same access to God that Jesus had. Jesus who said, I'm in the Father and the Father's in me and I'm in you. In the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, you have the mind of Christ. A direct spiritual connection to the mind of Messiah. This means God has direct access to your deepest self through union with Christ because of his work on the cross and resurrection. The Father can implant his thoughts in your mind by the Spirit. Truths from scripture and images, senses, feelings, prophetic words, desires that are like Jesus for other people in your imagination, in your body, becomes a temple where the spirit dwells and acts. Your job and my job is just to wait on him in a posture of listening. And finally, the fifth aspect of silence is love. It's love. This is the end goal. If we're oriented toward Jesus through silence and solitude and all his other practices, we will not be a culture of outrage, but we will be a force that transforms our culture of outrage into a culture of peace. And it will be the most attractive thing our desperate culture could ever see. This is what we are called to be. This is the, the essence of this whole thing is love. 
As St. John of the Cross said, our greatest need is to be silent before this great God for the only language he hears is the silent language of love. And that's obviously overstated. He likes when we speak truth to him as well. But the point is, if we stop at just words, we miss the whole point. It's not about what we say or what we do, it's about who we are. And when we're silent in God's presence, we realize, oh my gosh, being with God is so much more important than doing for God. And yet when we're with God, being with him, abiding in him, we realize, oh my goodness, doing for God is so important too. And it flows from this place of intimacy. So my, my prayer for you guys, gosh, world of noise, culture of outrage, all that, my prayer is that you would, you would step into this, that we would step into this together to be a people of prayer and quiet. Remember the birth pain, all the awkwardness of living in a culture of outrage, all of these are birth pains and the end result is joy. And no greater example of this do we have than Jesus. In that solitude of the garden, he realized the cross is painful, but for the joy set before him, he endured the cross so that we can be brought into intimacy with his father as well. So can we just be still? Take a deep breath. Relax. Detach from surface level desires for your deepest desire for union with God. Look at God looking at you saying, my beloved daughter, my beloved daughter, I'm pleased with you. My beloved son, look at you. I'm so pleased with you. And listen to become a person of love. So in about two and a half minutes, Drew's gonna start playing a song, but we have those two and a half minutes with God in quiet. And then I'm gonna open up the waters of baptism. If you've never been baptized, come on. Step into intimacy with the Father. But let's be still. Pay attention to your breathing. The king's in the room.